Welcome to Market Matters, our markets podcast on making sense, the hub for J.P. Morgan corporate and investment bank podcasts. In each episode of Market Matters, we discuss the latest news and trends shaping markets today. In this episode, we hear from Anna Stepnitska, global macroeconomist at Fidelity International, on different climate change scenarios. What we actually use is the scenarios from the Network for Greening the Financial System, the NGFS, which is a network of major central banks and supervisors. A few years ago, they set out to work with the climate modeling community to map climate change scenarios on various macro and market variables. On the impact of those climate change scenarios on different asset classes and markets. Overall, it's, it's negative on the global level, particularly for GDP growth. It's inflationary and overall the result is higher rates over the time horizon. But it varies a lot across different regions and therefore across asset classes. And on areas of positive progress. We are seeing some positive progress in climate policies, particularly coming uh, from the European Union. We have seen a substantial increase in average carbon pricing, for example. Hi, I'm Eloise Goulder, head of the Data Assets and Alpha Group here at JP Morgan. And today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Anna Stepnitska, who is Global Macroeconomist at Fidelity International. And in fact, Anna is the first external guest to be returning to this podcast series. So, Anna, thank you so much for coming back to speak to us today. Hi, Eloise. It's my pleasure to be back. Anna, last time we spoke, which was back in May last year, you alluded to all of your data-driven climate change work. And then not long after that, we went into the hottest summer on record. And in fact, last year turned out to be the hottest year on record across the globe. So it really feels like a very topical time to be picking up on this climate change debate with you. Yes, absolutely. Anna, what I'm really intrigued about is your work on syncing climate change, such a long-term theme, with asset allocation, which I often think of on a very tactical short-term basis. So Anna, can you start by describing what you set out to do here? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, it's widely known by now that climate change will affect economies dramatically in the in the coming years. And as you just said, it is already affecting the economies. So the overall potential impact is, of course, highly uncertain. But we know that it's certainly underappreciated by most investors. At least this is what we can see, what we can gather uh, from our interactions uh, with clients, for example. So from a top-down macro perspective, we're interested in how economies will evolve under different climate change scenarios. So how growth, inflation and interest rates will change going forward. And this is important because these macroeconomic projections are really at the core of long-term capital market assumptions that investors use in their asset allocation decisions. So we set out to stress test our existing capital market assumptions by feeding these climate-aware macro projections into our models. And the overall takeaway is that climate change will lead to significant negative impacts on long-term risk and return profiles uh, compared to our current baselines. 
But uh, this impact overall is highly differentiated across asset classes and across regions. And this just underscores the importance of incorporating climate change in this framework. That's so interesting that you're now tracking climate-aware macro projections and, of course, how this impacts inflation, growth and interest rates. And really interesting, although perhaps not surprising, to know that when you incorporate these climate-aware factors, it's negative as a whole for asset classes. But I'm intrigued as to the different scenarios that you lay out because so much is still unknown. And presumably there are trade-offs between the actions taken today to tackle climate change and then the benefits reaped in the future as a result of those actions. So, Anna, how do you think about those trade-offs? This is a highly complex question. But in simple terms, we know that climate risks could affect the economy and the financial system through a range of different transmission channels. And in this respect, we define the so-called transition risks and physical risks. And there is some trade-off between them. Transition risks are about policies, regulation, technology, all the things that will affect the economy through investment, productivity, everything that will affect uh, the macroeconomic outcomes. While physical risks uh, affect the economy through chronic impacts, uh, so that's about increased temperatures, rising sea levels, etc., that would affect labor, capital, nature, productivity, and also acute impacts. And this is what we've seen recently, acute impacts from extreme weather events, and that can lead to business disruption, to damages to property, agriculture, and again, labor productivity. So this is the framework that is used to project different scenarios, this trade-off between transition risks and physical risks of climate change. What we actually use is um, the scenarios from the Network for Greening the Financial System, the NGFS, which is a network of major central banks and supervisors. A few years ago, they set out to work with the climate modeling community to map climate change scenarios on various macro and market variables, uh, just to illustrate what economies might look like under these different assumptions of transition and physical risks. That's so interesting, this idea that we have transition risks in the nearer term and then physical risks in the longer term, and there's really a trade-off between the two. So, Anna, the various scenarios between those physical and transition risks, how do you think about them? So the NGFS scenarios have become a key instrument for central bank supervisors, private sector players to assess both the macrofinancial risks posed by climate change and the opportunities of timely climate change mitigation. This is really the industry standard, and that's why we have been using uh, these scenarios in our own work. Again, very simply, the NGFS framework includes seven scenarios that fall into four different categories. Uh, one category is orderly transition. So this is where policies are implemented uh, in a timely and effective manner. And so the result is both physical and transition risks are uh, relatively subdued in the coming years. So the second category is the disorderly transition scenario where not much is done in the next few years and then a lot has to be done in terms of transition 
after 2030, and as a result, we incur relatively high transition risks, we do limit the physical risks later this century, but they're still relatively high. The third category is the hothouse world scenario, and this is really the current policy scenario where some climate policies are implemented in some countries, but globally it's just not enough to hold that significant global warming. And as a result, physical risks are really high and really severe towards the middle part of the century. And finally, the fourth category, and that's actually the new one that the NGFS introduced in the latest revision, uh, too little, too late. When we invest a lot in transition and we incur really significant risks, but uh, actually it's not enough to limit those physical risks. And then we pay the price, really high price of physical risks later this century as well. Well, that's such a wide range of scenarios, really, from the orderly to the disorderly to the hothouse to the too little, too late. So how do you estimate which scenario we're in right now? Well, that's a really hard question because, of course, so many factors determine that speed of transition. And also there's so much uncertainty about all these processes and likely non-linearities as well in terms of how our planet will be responding to higher temperatures, how effective these transition policies might be, and whether countries will cooperate. So much uncertainty. Hence, we have this really wide range of outcomes. So what is the baseline? Well, first of all, I don't think we can, we can assume that an orderly net zero transition is our base case. Uh, this is the best outcome. This is where the temperature increase is capped above pre-industrial levels at one and a half or up to two degrees. But in fact, some already claim that we have now overshot the one and a half degrees target. So what makes it certain that we will not overshoot the two degree target? So I think that's that's probably not controversial that we shouldn't assume the orderly transition being a base case. So what we have done is we have actually developed our own, what we call the climate credibility tracker. And that focuses on three core elements of corporate action, policy action, and technological change. So we tracked these categories and tried to map the progress in each of them onto the climate scenarios. And perhaps unsurprisingly, our latest assessment of policies, corporate actions, and technological progress leads us to a conclusion that a disorderly transition scenario is right now the most appropriate contender for the path that is our baseline. Thank you, Anna. Well, that doesn't sound like a very rosy outcome at this stage. So perhaps later I can ask you about what the upside potential can be but first of all, I really want to get to how you're mapping and marrying these climate change scenarios and these physical versus transition risk scenarios through to expectations of market prices. So can you talk about how you go about that process? So we use the NGFS framework and we use the macroeconomic projections for each of these climate scenarios and we plug those macroeconomic projections into our own capital market assumption modeling to understand how returns might be different over different time horizons under different climate change scenarios 
across different asset classes. That sounds like a lot of a lot of scenarios and a lot of stress tests. Yes, this is actually really complex because we have a real range of outcomes for GDP growth, for inflation and for rates across different scenarios. Overall, it's it's negative on the global level, particularly for GDP growth. It's inflationary. And overall, uh, the result is higher rates over the time horizon. But it varies a lot across different regions and therefore across asset classes. So let me just summarize the overall effects briefly. Fixed income overall is less affected by climate change because we have the the price impact that is typically upset by higher income, although the magnitude of each component, again, differs a lot uh, across different scenarios. Equities exhibit much greater sensitivity to climate change, given their evaluation is typically based on discounted future cash flows. And this is mostly punitive under disorderly transition because of those high transition risks, and also under hothouse world where physical risks are very high. And this is where we see quite a lot of differentiation between developed markets and emerging markets. Under those scenarios where transition risks are higher, it's developed markets that um, assume the burden of that transition and the equity drawdown risk due to climate change is higher, particularly in those disorderly transition scenarios or the net zero by 2050 scenarios, because developed markets really have to invest in that transition. At the same time, emerging markets fare much worse than developed markets under current policies in the hothouse world scenario. Uh, because they have to incur really dramatic physical risks a few years down the line. Well, it's amazing the complexity of the work where you've gone from climate change scenarios all the way through to asset implication scenarios. And this idea that equities are probably disproportionately negatively affected versus bonds But even within equities, there's quite some differentiation between the DM economies and the EM economies that have different impacts based on physical versus transition risks. So if you have a climate change base case at this stage, is the impact on that now factored into your strategic asset allocation? Not yet. Our work in modeling climate change and assessing the impact on strategic asset allocation is very much in progress. We continue thinking about uh, this modeling as new information comes out. Clearly, it's very complex. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to show to investors how important it is to consider climate change in investment decisions. Because any failure to consider these risks may lead to misguided return expectations at best, or at worst, investors may fail to recognize this increasing possibility of negative and systemic financial market disruptions or economic disruptions as the impact of climate change broadens and intensifies. So for the time being, we're not sticking to one particular baseline, but we're using this scenario analysis to demonstrate different outcomes and try to prepare ourselves and our clients for various alternative scenarios. Yes, I mean, it's incredible work and so important. I mean, how mainstream would you argue this is? And if it's not yet, is there 
the chance that more and more investors and asset managers do this work. And as more of them do this work, more downside risks will be factored into forecasts. Well, it's all pretty new and cutting edge. Yeah. Um, although, as I said, the NGFS made these scenarios available, well, now a few years ago, and they have been working on revising them according to feedback that they're getting. But these scenarios are available to anyone to use. Uh, so, of course, there are various investors, including some of our competitors, who have picked up on the scenarios and they, they have also been stress testing their own frameworks so I'm sure over time, more and more investors will start incorporating climate change into their thinking. But overall, the industry is lagging. And at this point in time, I would say that climate risks are rarely integrated into capital market assumptions. And that's what we are trying to do. We're trying to do it in a forward-looking, transparent and consistent fashion using the most cutting edge scenarios that are out there. It definitely sounds like this is a critical area to be looking at from a strategic asset allocation perspective and others are likely to follow based on everything you've said. And so this could ripple through forecasts and therefore through impacts on the market. So I guess my question is, if this analysis hasn't yet become mainstream and as you said at the beginning, some investors still underappreciate the importance of these climate risks, is there some resistance from the investor community out there? And if so, what's going to encourage our industry to get over that resistance and to accurately and appropriately model these climate risks? I wouldn't say there is resistance, uh, but there is definitely lack of awareness, lack of education, perhaps due to all this being really new. The NGFS scenarios uh, are new, and as I said, they are evolving uh, these scenarios uh, mm. almost every year as new data and new information comes out. The modeling involved is, is highly complex, mm. and we are all learning. It's a learning process. But I would say the work that we're doing here is probably quite pioneering because we're picking up something that is uh, very recent, very new, which was not available before due to the lack of data. And now there is more data and we're using this data in our own models and we are modifying them to try to understand the, the impact on, on markets. And this whole process is highly, highly uncertain. Hence the complexity of the whole exercise. Well, it's very clear that these various climate change assumptions will be net negative for growth. What about inflation? I mean, what are the impacts on inflation from here? Yeah, this is quite interesting, actually, because one of the main assumptions under which um, transition can happen, whether it's uh, delayed, uh, disorderly or orderly, is carbon pricing. And carbon pricing is uh, a real game changer in terms of policies mm. that can help achieve that transition. So under the net zero scenario, we assume quite a steep increase in carbon price, whether mm. it's implicit via taxes or regulation or explicit. Yes which results in a steep rise in inflation. So actually, the next 10 to 20 years, we are seeing these uh, price spikes because of implementation of carbon pricing. 
And I guess that higher carbon prices feeds through to higher goods prices and that feeds through to the wider economy in terms of general inflation going up. Indeed, and this is actually one of the reasons why we think that uh, it's going to be quite difficult for central banks to get inflation back to their targets of 2%. And we assume that they will have to tolerate that overshoot partly because of the uh, net zero transition. That's fascinating, particularly in the context that we so often hear that the impact of AI as a totally different theme could be quite deflationary. How do you think about that, Anna? You, the climate change, net inflationary, AI, efficiency savings, net deflationary. What's the net impact of all of this? Now, that's a really complex question, but maybe we can think about it in terms of the climate credibility tracker framework that I mentioned earlier, where we track progress on corporate action, policy and technology to try to understand which scenario, which climate scenario we are in. So to the extent that AI can potentially help accelerate the development of those game-changing technologies or maybe smooth out policy implementation or perhaps reduce the impact of high temperatures on labor productivity and help predict and mitigate acute risks, then of course it can potentially help offset those negative macroeconomic effects of climate change to some extent. So it's exceptionally hard to predict, but I'm always a technology optimist and I think AI can help offset some of those inflationary impacts of climate change in the next few years. Absolutely. Well, I very much hope that that read is correct and that actually AI will at least help buffer some of the more negative and inflationary impacts of climate change transitions. You mentioned data earlier and you mentioned that part of the reason that all of your analysis is so groundbreaking and new is that you didn't previously have the data around climate change assumptions and what they meant for macroeconomic variables from which to do all of your analysis around strategic asset allocation. I guess from our seat, speaking to investors around data as a data-driven team, I'm always staggered by the wealth of ESG and climate change-related data that's out there, but also the diversity of the data and the noisiness of the data. So, Anna, you've come up with very focused conclusions on what, what all of these scenarios mean for asset prices. How have you gone about finding which sources of data you want to leverage, finding the signal from the noise, so to speak, from such a rich plethora of data out there? Yes, absolutely. I think from my uh, bottom-up perspective, uh, there is a lot of data and it's about, uh, as you say, distinguishing a signal from noise and it's about uh, understanding which data is good because there is a lot of bad data out there as mm. well. So in our climate credibility tracker, when we track progress in the three areas I talked about, we work with our uh, analysts, bottom-up analysts, uh, to understand what is it that we should be tracking, what really can make a difference mm. in terms of uh, shifting us from one climate change path into a different climate change path. For corporate action, for example, we use our own fidelity climate ratings that are put together by our analysts who interact with companies and who assess every single company on its potential to transition to net zero. 
for policies, we also assess which policies can really be game-changing. There's a lot of policies related to climate change out there, as you know, uh, but we really focus on game-changing policies such as carbon pricing. Mm. For technology, we also don't track every single technology that's out there that might promise to help that transition. We focus on game-changing technologies, specifically, of course, on renewables, on, on batteries, on hydrogen and uh, on building efficiency. So it's really about trying to identify the areas and the data that can change our progress on that path to net zero. And this is what we are tracking. So really it's it's working with our analysts and they're trying to marry up that bottom up inside with top-down macro data that we now have access to. Well, I'd love to end on a slightly lighter note. This discussion so far has been a little bit gloomy. Anna, is there anything positive in terms of what we can look towards on climate change? Of course, there are a number of positives. First of all, we are seeing some positive progress in climate policies, particularly coming uh, from the European Union. We have seen a substantial increase in average carbon pricing, for example, in Europe from around 20 euros per tonne at the start of 22 to a peak of 100 euros per tonne in February 23, and it's now about 70 to 80 euros per tonne. So while it's inflationary, it is actually key to driving transitions. Totally. So it's very positive. There is also some progress on the international level. We often hear negative headlines, but we did see the COP28 goals of tripling renewable capacity, doubling energy efficiency, scaling up nuclear and sustainable agriculture. We got some commitment from public and private investors in this transition to support that switch towards um, clean energy technologies. And this is all despite the recent uh, rate pressures and geopolitical risks. We see finance, climate finance, continuing to play a role. Of course, it has to play a much bigger role. But for now, at least, it is developing at a good speed. We've seen some uh, green bonds issued by various countries like Germany, for example, with the chief purpose of creating an operational marketplace for green finance. So we are seeing some developments. Uh, We need to see more of those in coming years. Yes. And actually, this year of all must be a critical one in terms of potentially shaping the future path of climate policy, because of course, 2024 is a bumper election year, such a large proportion of countries going to the polls. And of course, the US elections in November, I'm sure that the green agenda and green infrastructure spend will be hotly debated, given the differing views on this from the major parties. Of course, lots of debates, lots of uncertainty on the horizon, but also lots of opportunity for progress. Definitely. Let me just add another positive, Eloise, and that is uh, all this work, while gloomy, it's so important because it's about being prepared. And if I can use this quote from the futurist um, Karl Schroeder, he once said, foresight is not about predicting the future, it's about minimizing surprise. And so this is what we're doing. We're trying to understand what 
climate change might bring from a top-down perspective. We're trying to incorporate it into our capital market assumptions and strategic cost allocation. And in this way, we can help reduce the risk of negative surprises, adding resilience to investment portfolios. So again, it's really about being prepared. And even if the exact timing and path and magnitude remain uncertain, understanding climate risks and opportunities more granularly can help investors build more ballast into their portfolios to address climate change. Thank you, Anna. I absolutely love that quote. And as you say, it's all about minimizing risks of surprises and therefore being prepared. And I really think this conversation has helped me and I hope our listeners understand how to be more prepared, how to leverage various climate scenarios to be more prepared about the impact of those on asset returns. I really hope so. And that's what we're here to do. Well, Anna, this has been such a fascinating, insightful discussion with you, as always. So thank you so much for taking the time to come and speak today. Thank you for having me. Thank you also to our listeners for tuning in to this bi-weekly podcast from our group. If you'd like to read more about Anna and her team's work, then do take a look at our show notes where you'll find relevant links. Otherwise, if you have feedback or if you'd like to get in touch, then please do go to our website at jpmorgan.com forward slash market dash data dash intelligence. And there you can always send us a message via the contact us form. And with that, we'll close. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Market Matters. If you've enjoyed this conversation, we hope you'll review, rate, and subscribe to J.P. Morgan's Making Sense to stay on top of the latest industry news and trends. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. The views expressed in this podcast may not necessarily reflect the views of J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. and its affiliates, together J.P. Morgan, they are not the product of J.P. Morgan's research department and do not constitute a recommendation, advice, or an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any security or financial instrument. This podcast is intended for institutional and professional investors only and is not intended for retail investor use. It is provided for information purposes only. Referenced products and services in this podcast may not be suitable for you and may not be available in all jurisdictions. J.P. Morgan may make markets and trade as principal in securities and other asset classes and financial products that may have been discussed. For additional disclaimers and regulatory disclosures, please visit www.jpmorgan.com forward slash disclosures forward slash sales and trading disclaimer. For the avoidance of doubt, opinions expressed by any external speakers are the personal views of those speakers and do not represent the views of J.P. Morgan.